I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Kyle Kondik to our broadcast today. He is managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Kyle, 80 or so days until Election Day, how, how do you game play the, the data that is available to you and other pollsters? Uh, is there a unique way you're going through the data um, and the surveys of, of voters' approval and disapproval and uh, the, the matchups uh, across the many battleground states in the national polls? Is there a unique way you're approaching it this cycle? Uh, look, I think it's natural for us to sort of look at where things stand now as compared to 2016, because, of course, if we were talking four years ago, I think we would have been looking at Hillary Clinton as though she, she was a favorite. And so, uh, you know, if the numbers look very similar to uh, to 2016 and if sort of the trajectory is similar, then, uh, you know, then maybe Trump is maybe not being given as much of a, a chance to win as maybe we, we should be giving him. Uh, I will say that, you know, there, there are some things that stand out as being different, I think, as I sort of com- compare the polls now to the last time. You know, first of all, uh, they're, they're, the, the third party options are not getting nearly the amount of support that they got last time in that you might see uh, Gary Johnson, the Libertarian in 2016, or Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate in 2016. You know, you might see polls with Johnson in the, the mid to high uh, single digits. You might see Stein with a, f- a few percentage points worth of support. Um, you also had a lot of undecideds uh, in the election. Um, and uh, if you looked at some of the internals of some of these these polls, uh, you sometimes saw that that Hillary Clinton had um, more support from self-identified Democrats than than Trump had from self-identified Republicans, and uh, which which maybe suggested that some of those undecideds might lean more toward Trump, and so. A lot of undecideds, a lot of support going to third-party candidates in the 2016 polls. Uh, that I think added to some of the uncertainty, and and you know I think that sort of manifested on election day when uh, we found out that a lot of the late deciders sort of went toward more toward Trump than toward Clinton. Um, that the third-party candidates, and this has been true historically, uh, polled better than they actually performed on election day, and. Uh, uh, you know, this time you've got both Trump and Biden with a lot more party unity in that um, uh, basically, you know, uh, uh, if you look at some of these polls, you know, Biden is winning Democrats, you know, something like 90 to five or something like that. Uh, Trump is leading Republicans by a, a similar kind of margin, maybe doing slightly worse. There are fewer undecideds. There are fewer voters saying they're going to be voting third party. Um, that to me makes Biden's lead seem a little more real, I guess, maybe than Clinton's did. But at the same time, we have to allow for the possibility uh, that that things can change. And, you know, just one other thing, though, speaking of change, is that um, the, the, the polls are a little bit more of a roller coaster in 2016 in that Clinton was almost always leading, but Trump would on occasion uh, catch up in some polls. Um, Biden's lead has been much more consistent this time. It hasn't always been as big as Clinton's lead, um, but it's been relatively stable. Now, again, we don't know what's going to happen going forward here, but that's also something to note. So I, I guess Biden's position to me seems a little bit better than Clinton's was this time four years ago, but I also don't think we should be, you know, closing the book on the election or anything like that. Kyle, in a typical election cycle, every four years, we would look to the conventions for bumps, and we would look to the debates for bumps. Um, Bumps up, bumps down. Um, 
what are the complicating factors to that this cycle because of the virtual conventions? They'll still be aired nationally, but it's not clear that they or the debates will have the same effect because we're going through a national crisis and changes based on debate performance or convention performance um, are factors that the voters uh, may, may not consider as much this time around. Yeah, so this is a new uh, new world for us in terms of the conventions in that there's going to be primetime programming that is going to be billed as the Democratic National Convention uh, and then and then the Republican National Convention uh, the week after. But it's not going to be like what we're used to. I mean, there's not going to be the the kind of pomp and circumstance of the of the convention hall. Um, there's just going to be fewer fewer hours to fill in terms of uh, you know p- programming. Uh, I think that the bit the the networks have said they're only going to take I think maybe for the Democrats the last hour, so that the 10 to 11 p.m. Eastern slot. Um, the Democrats are going to be trying to 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 fit a lot of shoehorn a lot of speakers into kind of a limited amount of time. You know, I mentioned earlier too that um, party unity in the polls is really quite high in that for whatever problems that both Biden and Trump may have, both of them are doing really well amongst their, uh, you know, their, their, their co-partisans. Again, self-identified Democrats, very strongly supportive of Biden, likewise with Trump. And, you know, Trump eventually got a lot of support within his own party in 2016, but it took him a long time to get that. The Republicans are more unified behind him now than they were four years ago, which, you know, makes sense in that he's, he's the, the, the sitting uh, incumbent Republican president. But, Sometimes what you see with these convention bumps is that they're a way for the parties to unify, but if the parties are already unified, maybe there's not, maybe you won't see as much movement from them. And again, I also wonder what the, the viewership of these things are actually going to be. I mean, uh, the conventions are historically, you know, pretty important, pretty well watched. Um, you know, I mean, I guess in some ways there is, a, you know, captive audience in that just fewer fewer people are traveling, fewer people are uh, are more people are home. Uh, more a lot of people are very interested in politics right now. Polls tell us that, and people's behavior tells us that. But I just don't know how many people are going to be watching, and I don't know how many truly persuadable people are going to be watching. And if you believe the polls, there really aren't that many undecided voters anyway. Right, and we are focused on the undecided voters in the battleground states, um, which were omitted or neglected, at least in part, in some calculations and prognostications in 2016. But, but I suppose you think that the debates could have more of a bump effect than the conventions this year. But in general, based on the data you have since COVID exploded and this national and international conflagration emerged uncontrollably, uh, is there an indication by any metric you're studying that these kinds of external factors, how well someone performs in a debate, will not change the growing body count and the perception of a failed American response? Is there any statistical data that's, that's been driven in the polling on that? Um, look, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing that, you know, perceptions of the president um, aren't really that much different now than they were before the pandemic. And so sometimes uh, political scientists will use the term, uh, the, the fundamentals to, to sort of talk about 
big picture factors in an election that maybe are kind of outside the, you know, the, the, the power of the campaigns to change. And so those things are matters of war and peace, the economy. Um, and, and then those things are kind of reflected in the incumbent president's uh, uh, approval rating, um, whether there's an incumbent on the ballot or not, um, you know, how long one party has held the White House, et cetera. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, I think you would have said that the so-called fundamentals were actually were, were definitely in Trump's favor, and that um, despite despite his his problems and his gen, general unpopularity, uh, many Americans generally felt like we were in a, a time of relative peace and prosperity, whether they liked the president or not. Uh, and then we move into this period where really it's been a terrible year in the United States, just objectively speaking. Um, we have handled the, the pandemic probably worse than, than any other kind of, kind of comparable, uh, comparable country. Uh, the state of the economy is is poor uh, and, and probably needs further intervention to, uh, to prevent it from getting even worse. Um, but there's not that big of a difference in the president's approval rating pre-pandemic and, and post-pandemic. And so in some ways you could say that, that Trump was kind of performing the so-called fundamentals pre-pandemic, and now maybe he's overperforming them. But I think it does kind of show how um, set in place much of the electorate is. Generally speaking, Biden has been leading in, in polls. It was maybe four or five points uh, in the first half of the year, generally speaking. Uh, but then when you get about to, to, to about June, uh, you start to see Biden's lead extend out to more like seven to nine points, which is sort of where we're, we're still at right now. So I think you could attribute some of that to the pandemic response. I think you could attribute some of that to the uh, protests over racial inequities and policing. And, and the president has gotten poor marks on uh, in polling from uh, for, for handling of coronavirus and also for handling of race relations and uh, and, and and protests over racial inequities. I, I guess what could potentially change things and maybe uh, cause Biden's lead to tighten back up uh, and and put the election more in doubt is. Can the president maybe point to um, better outcomes in, in coronavirus, not necessarily that it's gone away, but maybe the trajectory of the cases uh, get better for him, or at least maybe you or I might look at the, the, the cases and say, boy, things really aren't getting all that much better. They're still really bad. But that doesn't necessarily matter. It's in terms of the president's messaging. It can be: can he tell people who might be sort of on the fence and who might be inclined to support him, but but a little doubtful? Can he point to progress? Can he also point to maybe economic numbers getting better uh, in advance of the election? You know, that's also something to watch for. But again, the, the electorate has been very steady, even though it's been, I mean, an incredibly disruptive and, and topsy-turvy kind of year. And so, you, you know, you say, well, can the conventions make some difference? Can the debates make some difference? Um, potentially, but I think we also have to be prepared for a situation where the numbers really don't change all that much. And this thing is just um, very steady from now until election day. Kyle, what about when the numbers don't add up? And I want to ask you about that in two respects. One is the kind of what I've dubbed the reverse Bradley effect. So um, folks who are not answering honestly or misrepresenting their, their point of view um, that they wouldn't vote for Trump when in fact they would vote for Trump. Um, or folks are just not picking up the phone or answering the digital poll because they view the polling establishment as part of 
um, the media, which Trump has often discredited. So th there's that aspect of, of whether you think in this cycle, in the Senate races that you're polling, and, and also in the battleground states for the Electoral College, whether you think that they are accurately counting Trump voters and reaching Trump voters. Uh, let me ask you about that first. Uh, sure. And that's a question that comes up a lot. I don't think that there's been much demonstrable evidence that there was a so-called shy Trump um, effect in 2016. I think that some of the problems that specifically some of the state level polls had in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin was, well, one, as, as I mentioned earlier, there was, uh, there were a lot of voters parked in the undecided column and also in the uh, saying they were going to vote third party and then maybe not voting third party. Um, that I think maybe, maybe even when Clinton was leading, there was maybe more uncertainty there than, than maybe we, we realized. Um, but also that uh, there has become this, this big split in, particularly amongst white voters, in which white voters who don't have a four-year college degree, you know, a long time ago, generations ago, that you would have thought of those, those kinds of voters as being kind of the, the bedrock of the Democratic Party. Um, that group has been Republican, has gotten even more Republican on, with Donald Trump leading the Republican Party. Meanwhile, you have white voters who do have a four-year college degree, who again at one time would have been considered the bedrock of the Republican Party. Uh, those voters have become much more of a swing demographic or, or, or probably even, even more of a Democratic demographic. And what we know about polls is that, generally speaking, people with higher levels of education are likelier to actually respond to polls. And so you have to deal with that as a pollster. You have to try to um, wait around various characteristics. You know, if you, if you don't, if you get too many respondents, then you think you're going to be in the electorate of a certain demographic, you maybe sort of weigh down their responses. And then if you don't get enough of certain kinds of voters that you think are going to be, uh, you know, in, in, in the, in, uh, uh, in the electorate, you would then weight them up. And, and what, what some of these polls weren't doing in 2016 were they were, weren't waiting by education. And so, uh, they were presenting electorates that had higher levels of for, formal, uh, four-year college attainment than was in reality. And that had, that, that, that essentially had the effect of making the, uh, the polls kind of lean democratic. So that's something that you can account for, and I think that much more than a, you know, a shy Trump effect um, was maybe what contributed to some problems in, in, 20, uh, in, in, in 2016. And, and look, I think it's also, it's, it's probably unfair to expect polls to be, you know, to be perfect, to, you know, be able to average them together and, and have them be totally spot on uh, on election day. But I still think polls are very useful instruments engaging public opinion. I think they're important. I mean, obviously, they're important to someone like myself, who's, uh, doing election uh, analysis and handicapping because that's a way to take the gauge of the electorate. Um, but I also think polls can tell us about, you know, what the public thinks about something and, uh, uh, and what, the vote, what the electorate's priorities are. And so for all those reasons, it is important. Um, and I, I, again, I just don't think that there's much evidence and there have been people, you know, more statistically inclined than, than myself and who, um, uh, who, who have, have looked at the shy Trump effect and they, they don't really see it. They don't really see different response rates for Democrats and Republicans in these polls. Um, and so I, I, I think, I, look, I, here's, here's, here's what I think about it. Is it possible that the polls may underestimate Trump again in 2020? Yeah, I think that's possible. It certainly could happen. They also could overestimate Trump. We, we just don't know. Um, but I do think that if Trump is going to win the election, um, he will be closer in the polls than he is now. 
Um, so that's, that's something to watch. I think Biden's leads are significant enough in the bulk of the data we have that if the election were today, Biden would win. Um, but if we get close to the election day, things tighten up, uh, you know, and that certainly could happen. That's what we have to be on watch for um, when trying to, to forecast this election. That makes sense. I would say the other area of grave, grave concern when it comes to the, the numbers not adding up, uh, to use your words, is mail voting. So given the precarious nature of our mobility amidst this pandemic, our ability to access the polling station, our ability for the vote to be delivered and counted, not just counted, but it has to be delivered in order to be counted. Um, in some cases, you're able to drop it off at a drop box. Does, how has that factored into your assessment of how many folks will vote? Um, of course, you're doing polls, uh, assuming that people will be counted equally, whether they vote by mail or vote in person. Um, but how, how, if at all, has that factored into your assessment so far? Um, I, I think it's going to be important for pollsters to really try to drill down on who is a, quote, likely voter uh, or, or not. And that's the, the, the term used when, you know, you, you do a survey and, and you, you, you try to figure out not just if a person is registered to vote, but if they are, in fact, likely, likely to cast a vote. And, you know, it involves some, some, some different, different pollsters will screen for it in different kinds of ways. Um, and I think it may be particularly important to try to ask people maybe how they're going to be voting, if they have a plan to vote. Um, and one tricky thing with mail-in votes is that, uh, you know, when you're in the, the voting booth, uh, you could ask a poll worker if you're confused about something or get some help on filling out the ballot, et cetera. Uh, if you're voting by mail, you don't necessarily have someone you can ask. And there are there are certain, you know, certain, um, uh, you, you have to sign, you know, it depends on the state, but you have to, you know, sign the ballot in the proper way, seal the ballot in the proper way. And if you vote by mail, there may be a, a higher likelihood that your vote would get thrown out because you somehow filled it out in, improperly. Uh, and I think we've also seen that, I think large, in large part because of the president's rhetoric, uh, that Republicans are less likely now to want to vote by mail and Democrats are more likely to want to vote by mail. Um, but if you've got a ton of Democrats voting by mail and not as many Republicans, and also there may be a higher rejection rate for some of these ballots, uh, maybe there's problems with the Postal Service too. That's been another uh, topic of conversation uh, in, in recent weeks is, is the funding of the Postal Service and whether the Post Office can, can, uh, can accommodate all of these mail-in ballots. And so if you have that situation where you've got a lot of Democrats voting by mail, maybe not as many Republicans, uh, and, you know, some small percentage, you know, one, two percent of the, um, the mail-in ballots are rejected, is it possible that that could actually give Republicans an advantage because, because they're, they're more voting in person? Um, now, granted, you know, I think that only really matters uh, on the margins in terms of the outcomes, although... I certainly, you know, I'm someone who just sort of gen generically believes in, um, you know, have voter participation should be high. We should we should have people should have the opportunity to vote um, and to and to vote with ease and to vote with confidence. And I just I do worry about that. And you know, you also have a situation where 
we're in the midst of a pandemic. There are going to be certain people um, who are going to want to vote in person, who have voted in person in the past. Um, does that, you know, if they maybe not don't fill their ballot out pr properly or in, in some other way, um, their vote doesn't get counted. I'm sure there are going to be legal fights over absentee ballots and, you know, the parties arguing whether a ballot should be accepted or rejected. And I mean, that, that, that sort of stuff always happens, but it might happen to a greater degree this time because of a increased share of mail-in voting. And so that's a, I don't know how you really quantify that if you're doing a poll or you're trying to build a model for the election or something, but it is something we have to keep in mind and it is a sort of additional sor source of uncertainty uh, about the outcome. And does that impair, do you think, your and your colleagues' crystal ball or your, your capacity to um, measure what you think will be the output, uh, the results um, this cycle? Um, look, I think, I think that, that we're, we're being cautious. I think a lot of other folks are being cautious. Uh, um, you know, part of it is... Uh, is is uh, part of it is 2016 to be honest. Um, part of it is some of the things we've talked about with the the, um, the uncertainty surrounding the pandemic. I mean, again, also, you know, it's possible that again that maybe the trajectory will be better, um, or at least the president might be able to to claim in in some ways that the trajectory of, of the disease is better. The economic numbers could get better. You know, we just it's 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 a it's a it's a strange and truly unprecedented. Um, uh, an environment, I think you have to account for that in trying to make, make your projections. You know, all I would say is that based on what we know now, you know, Biden is in a better position than Trump, but we just have to be patient and see if anything changes that. I mean, I, I think in any election, um, checking in after the vice presidential pick, uh, picks uh, and then checking in uh, after the conventions, you know, around Labor Day, that can be a decent place to sort of take stock of the election. And so uh, I'm curious to see if, you know, if we're in the same position on Labor Day that we are prior to the conventions, um, you know, certainly whatever you thought of Biden's chances probably probably gets a little bit better. Whereas if things tighten up a little bit, uh, then maybe you start to look at uh, look at the election as being uh, as, as, as being more close to competitive. Right. And with respect to which polling firms have the authority on 2016 and then 2018, uh, as we conclude our conversation, Kyle, can you do a, an audit or a self-reflection assessment of, of the crystal ball, which is often, you know, really an excellent barometer? Um, where were you in 16? Where were you with the midterms in 18 and where do you hope to be in your predictive ability with 20? Uh, you know, I feel like we got a pretty good track record. I mean, we, we know we had Clinton, uh, we had Clinton leading or, 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 or uh, favored in, in 2016, although we had the, the, the Senate and the house very close that year. Um, we very consistently had Democrats favored in the house and Republicans favored in the Senate in 2018, which was how it shook out. Um, and, you know, right now uh, we've got Democrats favored in the House. Um, Senate is maybe a slight Democratic edge, but, but, but kind of 50-50. Kind of um, in our, our Electoral College map right now, we've got Biden at 268. Uh, we've got Trump at um, uh, 204. Uh, and then we have uh, 66 electoral votes uh, worth of, worth of toss-ups. Um, and, uh, you know, so we have Biden head. Um, but we don't also don't have him over 270 in our ratings. 
Um, I would say that if you, you know, there, there are probably other um, prognosticators or forecasters who maybe are a little bit more bullish on Biden than we are. Um, but, you know, we're, we're trying to reflect some of the, I think, genuine uncertainty we feel about, about the election um, and also about all these other kind of crazy things going on um, that we don't quite know how they're going to affect the election and what, uh, what the trajectory of these stories might be when people actually go vote. And with respect to your crystal ball, is there a point in the campaign where you lock in a firm electoral college prediction? Um, I mean, we, you know, we try to um, kind of build toward the day before the election uh, and we'll try to, you know, we have certain races in the toss up column, our, our general plan and hope is to sort of reduce the number of toss ups as you get closer to the election uh, and then kind of lock in a final uh, a final pick at the end. Um, you know, again, I think our map is reflective of an environment where, uh, um, where Biden is favored, but we don't, we don't really see it as a lot as, as a lock at this point. And what do you think might be the most surprising result in 2020? Is it in a Senate race? Is it, um, that you think, um, there could be a landslide in, in one or both directions? Um, what, what, what is your gut and, and, statisticians uh, uh, assessment of, of what might be the, the biggest surprise in light of the fact that so many were surprised in 16. In 18, not really so much, but in 20, what would you say might be your, your biggest surprise at this juncture? Again, we're, we're 75, 80 days uh, away from election day, but wonder if you had chewed on that at all. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, I don't think it's impossible that we could see some sort of big upset in the Senate and involving someone who is famous. Um, I guess sort of a, a dark horse upset possibility might be South Carolina where Lindsey Graham is running for reelection uh, against Jamie Harrison, who's a pretty credible democratic challenger. I'm not saying that that's going to happen or anything, but, but that's one that, um, that, that race seems pretty close. The president, you know, Trump seems, seems like he's going to carry that state for president, um, but potentially by a reduced margin from, um, from 2020. And, you know, that's kind of a, kind of a sleeper Senate race that I'm looking at. And, you know, Graham is, um, I bring him up just because I think that he's probably one of the better known members of the U S Senate. Um, I guess, you know, Mitch McConnell also has a, uh, has a fairly credible challenger this year, but I, I see him as being in a better position than, than Graham is. And I think Graham is favored too. Um, but that's, that's just one, that's just one to watch. And that I think probably ha has gotten a lot of attention. It's gotten some attention and probably will get more attention um, down the stretch here again, just because Graham is, uh, is such an interesting office holder and is a pretty well-known person nationally. He's been in the Senate and, and Congress for a pretty long time. Kyle Kondik, Managing Editor of Sabado's Crystal Ball. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you.